The passage of scripture that was read to us this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so please turn there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4. It's a rather lengthy uh, section of this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, but we'll just be uh, diving in and kind of surfing over the, uh, over the surface of the, of, the, of the letter and picking out some, uh, some highlights, I think some salient points uh, as it pertains to the issue of Christian leadership. So we're talking this morning about church leaders and the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, we've been in 1 Corinthians since the beginning of this year, uh, a new series entitled Gospel Council in an, age, um, in an age that is antagonistic to the faith, in an age of compromise and con- confusion. Uh, Paul uh, writes this letter to a church that is compromised in its faith and very confused on a, a number of matters. And part of this was because They were allowing the philosophies and the wisdom of the world to infiltrate their their church life, their thinking, the teaching of the church, and it was causing all kinds of issues. And one of the issues that it caused was division within the uh, church. So from chapters one through four, Paul deals with this issue of division. He addresses it. He does so even here in chapter three and four. Uh, As a matter of fact, in some ways, what he says here in chapters three and four is even more intense about the issue of division and factions within the church. This is the first problem in Corinthians that he deals with, and there are many others. But here he tries to correct what is going on in the church. And I want to say say this, that when Paul corrects an issue, he doesn't just, he just doesn't touch it on the surface. Do you know what I mean? So often we have wounds. And what we try to do is just put a little bit of ointment on it and a Band-Aid on it, but the wound goes much deeper, and the wound requires surgery. And, and that's what Paul does here. He's, he's not content as a leader to just simply say, okay, everything's fine now. Um, put this Band-Aid on it. You know, Paul, Paul goes right to the core of what the issue is. And he says some things here that are quite startling, actually, in chapter 3 and 4, because he goes into the depth of what the issue is. And let me just say this right up front. There there are basically two things that caused division in the church. The first was they had a misunderstanding of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Clearly, the message of the gospel wasn't central to their church's life. And the second thing was is that they they were really messed up when it came to understanding what Christian leadership is all about. And so they were, you know, forming themselves into factions around different leaders. They were identifying themselves with leaders within the church. And in so doing, they were not grasping the true nature of what Christian leadership is all about. I think this is a a very, very important topic for us, particularly at this stage in the history of our church as West Highland is going through leadership transition. So providentially, I think it's a good thing that we consider what Paul says here in chapter three and chapter four. What should characterize then Christian leadership? What should church leaders be all about? Now the total answer is not, is not confined to chapters three and four. There are other passages in God's word that need to be considered. But chapter 3 and 4 are certainly a starting point. I would say they are foundational to our understanding of what Christian leadership is all about. So I want you to notice right at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul calls them brothers. Paul really believes these are converted people. He says brothers, sisters. He, he, He knows that they have grasped the gospel message. And according to what he said, and we looked at this last week in chapter 2, because they have received the Spirit, they are spiritual. Remember, we talked about that. If, if, you've, if you have the Spirit, Paul says you are spiritual. You're no longer a natural person without the Spirit. So he, he says that they have the Spirit, but notice it. Then he adds, but I could not address you as spiritual. 
I know you're real believers, he's saying, but I can't talk to you like you're real believers. Why? He says, you're worldly. You're mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And what he means by that is you're 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 just acting like you're the pagans that surround you in Corinth. There's nothing in your life that really distinguishes you as being unique from people who are not believers. Are you not acting like mere men? Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? You're not spiritual in this sense, Paul says. And so Paul reveals something here. I, I think the point that he's making here is that if you have the Spirit... If you have really grasped the gospel of Christ, if if you warrant the title of brother or sister in Christ, then that means you are expected to become mature in your faith. Not not to stay as though you you haven't entered the faith. And maturity, as, as the Apostle Paul defines it here, is the ability to take in truth And it is also the the attitude that avoids division. People who are always stirring up and causing division in the church, they are not mature. It doesn't matter how super spiritual they sound. They are not mature at all. When an individual is mature in Christ, there is an embracing of what Paul says concerning leadership in the church. When we are immature, we carry on in factions. So, at the next verse then, verse 5, we come to our first point, and Paul says this, the church leaders are essentially servants of Christ. Verse 5, what after all is Apollos? Notice he doesn't say who is Apollos, they know who he was, but what is he? What's his status? Does he have some super spiritual status in the church? No, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through who you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul had a certain task. Apollos had a certain task. And those tasks were assigned to them by the Lord. Now, at this point, Paul, Paul uses a, two anal- anal- analogies. Let's call them illustrations to underscore his point that the church leaders are simply servants of Christ. And the first one is he talks about, he uses an agricultural illustration. Secondly, he uses an architectural one. But notice what he says, only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each to his task. Here's the agricultural piece. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we, he meaning me, we the apostles, me and Apollos and others like us, we are God's fellow workers. You, the church, you are God's field. So he takes us to the farm. He takes us to the farm where, where one is watering, one, one plants and one waters, but, but God is at work here. The, the point that Paul is making in, in verse 8, when he says, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, is this, that he's not, he's not ruling out the importance that each man has each task. It's a different task. But he's trying to give a big picture here. And the big picture is that they're all working together for a common reason. And in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You see the the possessiveness there? Who, Who possesses the workers? Who possesses the field? God. This is God's. It's it's God. It's only God. He's the one who makes it grow. The field, all of us, the church, 
We belong to God. The field is his. The workers, that is in our setting here, the pastors and elders of the church, well, they belong to God too. And what Paul is driving at here is the issue of allegiance. To whom do we give our allegiance? Now, for the Corinthians, their allegiance was going to human leaders, church leaders. And Paul is saying, duh, they're only servants. Your allegiance is not to them. Your allegiance is to Christ. You are not to give church leaders, he's saying, an allegiance that should be given to God alone. Church leaders are owned by God. Church leaders, Christian leaders, are used by God. Therefore, our allegiance is to God and not to the leader. Now, in no way is Paul saying, in no way is he teaching that we should not have gratitude for leaders in the church. He's not teaching they should not be respected in the church or treated poorly by the church. He's not, he's not saying that. But what he is saying is that they, 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 there should not be attributed to them some kind of a God-like status. For they are simply servants. And when you, when you, when you give to a Christian leader some kind of a God-like status, all you're doing is creating division within the body. Don't, don't venerate them. Honor them, yes, but not venerate them. They are servants, and to each servant has been given a specific task in the farm, in God's field. They complement each other. They do not compete against each other. So that's the point that he's making here, that there should be an allegiance that is reserved only for God. Now, the second illustration that he uses is, is of a construct, construction site. And he alludes to it, well, he mentions it right at the end of verse 9, you are God's building. And then he goes into the illustration um, in the next verse, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he transitions in verse 9 to this new illustration of a farm. He goes from the farm to the construction site, and he essentially says this, the building, the thing being built, is all of us. We are the church. The builders, well, Paul says it's me and Apollos. It's, it's the workers. We're, we're the construction workers. It's the leaders in verse 10, Paul refers to himself here as an expert builder. And he means by that that he was, in one sense, the architect of what happened in the Corinthian church. And, and look at what he says. We have to be careful how we build. For then, verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, he says, I laid a foundation. The foundation which Paul laid was the foundation of Jesus Christ. But he said, I was the foundation layer. I planted this church. I, I, I built and established this church. And then others, like Apollos, followed me. And he's, he's sort of alluding to the fact that now in Corinth, you've got some different leaders. And he's going to say something about those leaders a little bit later in the passage. We'll come back to that. But his point is this, that it's foolish to focus on one leader because they all have a common purpose in building God's church. Now, two things he stresses. First, Jesus is the foundation of the church. Verse 11 is so critical to our understanding as a local church. For no one can lay any other foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if some kind of church leader comes along in the future and he wants to lay another foundation, which isn't Jesus, it's not built on Jesus, then no one can do that, Paul says. It cannot be allowed. But then he says in verse 10, each one should be careful how he builds. Church leaders have to be careful how they build on the foundation that has already been laid. So if the illustration of the farm is all about who we give our allegiance to, 
then the illustration of the construction site is about the accountability of church leaders. They have to be careful how they build. Now, he alludes to that in the next verse, in verse 12, and he talks about the building materials that they will use. And he says they have to be careful what kind of materials they use. Verse 12, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, now those things really stand out as pretty good. But then he says, wood, hay, or straw. So you've got some pretty valuable materials here. And you've got stuff that is very combustible. It can go up in a spark just like that. Verse 13, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, that is the day of Christ, the day of Christ's return will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. We have to be careful, church leaders, how we build. There's the danger of bad workmanship, and there's the danger of using bad materials. Now, it's clear that the workers that he's talking about, the people who work here, are not all believers in Christ, though there is a sense in which all of us contribute to the building of the church. There's, we can't get around that. So this is applicable to every, every single one of us because we all are a part of, of building and serving. We're all ser servants. But, but Paul's point here is, is the leaders of the church. The quality of their work is going to be revealed. Now, really what he's stressing here is that God really cares about this. God cares about workmanship. God cares about the materials that are going to be used because God cares about his church. And so church leaders are accountable for how they live their lives and how they build. And he, I think he makes this point very solid in verse 16 and 17 when he says, don't you know that you are your, yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? What's he saying? What's being built? A temple. We are the temple of God. Now, now, when he uses the pronoun you here, he's not saying you individually. It's, it's not you singular. It's you plural. You, all of us, we comprise God's temple. Yes, it's true that the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us individually, and, and he'll point that out when we get to chapter 6. But here in chapter 3, the point is that God's Spirit dwells in, in all of us. We are the temple. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. I think the reason why Paul uses the imagery here of the church being a temple, and he's thinking about a temple, is because of the gold, silver, and costly stones that he just mentioned. And that would have reminded him, of course, of the temple that Solomon built, using all of these very, very special and precious stones. So the building here is clearly a temple, and the temple is built on Jesus Christ. And the point is, is that God lives in us. And the church he lives in, he loves, and he cares for her. Paul's flashing a, a light here saying, warning Christian leaders, you who are builders, careful how you build. Careful about the materials that you use. If, if anyone, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, it's almost as though he's going beyond the Christian leaders here. Saying that all of us have a part in here. And if, if, if our focus Remember, this is the issue in Corinth. If our focus is on the approval of the world, if we're all wrapped up in the philosophies of this world, not the gospel, but, but, but what the world teaches, and we're trying to bring that into the church, what are we doing? We're building with wood, with hay, and with straw. And on the final day, it will all be consumed and friends, there are churches all across Canada, and the builders in those churches are building with wood, hay, and straw. They're bringing the wisdom of the world into the church. 
and they're damaging the church. Isn't it interesting if you, if you follow media as media covers what's going on in the church that, that every time a church leader talks about flying a rainbow flag or, or becoming affirming, that all of a sudden the media is there and they're heaping praise on that church leader. But if a leader just preaches the gospel of Christ and calls people to repent of all kinds of sinful lifestyle and will not adopt an affirming position that the media is all over that Christian leader and that Christian church. Listen, building with hood, hay, and straw just simply damages the church. Listen, there are many ways to damage a church. Factions and divisions will do it. Focusing on leaders and issues will do it. Taking our eyes off Christ will damage the church. Having programs in the church that are not centered and rooted in the gospel of Christ will damage the church. Operating a church in such a way that all we're trying to do is entertain people will damage the church. Allowing Christian leaders to get on their little theological hobby horses and just park themselves there because they want a little grouping of people all around them for their theological position, that will damage the church. Allowing bitterness to get into our hearts will damage the church. Not disciplining church members who are living lives that are in flagrant opposition to the gospel of Christ will damage the church. We're going to talk about that next week in chapter 5. Because it comes up, it's right there. There are many ways to damage the church, and so this is a warning here. Both farm illustration and construction site illustration emphasize this truth that Christian leaders are servants and they will be accountable to God for how they build. And notice chapter 4 now, verse 1. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. That's how we should be viewed, he's saying. So we come now to the second thing about Christian leaders. Is that Christian leaders must or are stewards of the gospel because he says in verse 1, so then men ought to regard us, chapter 4, 1, as servants of Christ and those entrusted. We've become stewards. Entrusted with what? With the secret things of God. Now, it's true that, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been entrusted to the whole of the church, but in a unique way to Christian leaders. They're entrusted with this, as it were, the secret things of God, which is the mystery, the, the gospel of Christ, the secret or the mystery, in a sense, which was hidden before Christ came, but now has been made revealed. And God's secret wisdom is summed up in this truth that Jesus Christ has been crucified. The Messiah has died. That's the gospel message. As I said, entrusted to every disciple of Christ, but certainly to Christian leaders. And I think that becomes very clear when Paul says in verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. What I'm, what I'm talking about, about stewardship and, and servanthood, I'm applying to me and to Apollos. I'm applying this to church leaders. So to church leaders, there's a different degree of stewardship. It means the church leaders have an obligation to promote the gospel by word, certainly, and by the example of their lives, to, to make it known, to, to encourage others to live it out. And this, this calling has a, has a high degree of faithfulness attached to it. Verse 2, it is required that those who've been given a trust, stewards, must prove faithful. To whom? Faithful to whom? Well, some might say, well, to the church. Well, well yes, of course. And Paul brings that out in Colossians 1, that he, he became a servant of the church. But, but that's not what he's saying here. That's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is faithful to Christ. We build his temple and we work in his field. It's a call to faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of not the church, but Christ that Christian leaders are to steward. And this is an important stress here in this passage, because in Corinth, they were having like a popularity 
contest when it came to leaders. And in verse 3, Paul says, I care very, very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. What's he saying? I've been called by Christ. I'm accountable to Jesus Christ. I must be faithful to Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what the judgment of the Corinthians is. He, then he adds, I don't even judge myself. The last part of verse 3, I don't even judge myself. Which, what's he saying? He's saying, it, it, what, he, what he means is that there is no significance whatsoever to everyone else's opinion of a Christian leader. What really matters is the opinion of Jesus Christ because it is only the opinion of Jesus that carries eternal weight. Verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Next line, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul's point is that Christian leaders are servants and stewards and they should be, have an allegiance to Jesus. And the important truth, this is an important truth because Christian leaders sometimes get fixed on winning praise from their peers or praise from the people they serve. And when they do, they get diverted from the gospel of Christ. It is only the well done, good and faithful servant, the words of Jesus that we should desire as Christian leaders. And verse 5 is an important verse. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in dark, darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. And Paul's saying here that all of us who are called to follow Christian leaders must recognize that Christian leaders are called to please Jesus Christ, to be faithful to him. So don't stand in judgment over them as if you are the ultimate arbiter of their success. And you see, in Corinth, some of the people there were writing off certain leaders simply because they preferred another leader. They became the self-appointed judges then of all the leaders. And that's the warning that Paul is giving here. Christian leaders are servants. Christian leaders are stewards. And now beginning at verse 8, he moves into another point that he wants to emphasize. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And that without us. Now he's transitioning into his next point, which is that, is that church leaders are to live in light of the cross. Now I want you to, I want to, I want you to go back to verse 8. Actually, verses 8 through verse 13, there's sort of a biting irony in the words that Paul uses. You can, you can sense here that he's speaking critically, not to damage, but to make a point. There's almost a sarcasm in Paul's words. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And here's the little sarcastic jibe. And that without us. What's he getting at here? He's essentially saying, you Corinthians are saying that you've already arrived. You've already arrived. Like you have, you have already hit this plateau of spirituality. And you did it without us. You did it without any help from the apostles at all. What's he saying? It's a bunch of baloney, is what he's saying. The sarcasm is real. You did it without the help of the apostles. You see, I think what Paul is alluding to here, it appears that in the Corinthian church, there were some who believed, and perhaps this was representative within the new leadership of the church, that they, they, were, they were taking all of these scriptures which talk about the future, where we will be free from suffering, and, 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 and we will enjoy the richness of heaven. And, as it says in Revelation, we will reign with Christ. 
That they were taking these verses and instead of applying them to the age to come, they were saying, that's who we are right now. And there is, there is an element of truth to that, that we reign with Christ, that, that we, we, have, we have been given the Spirit as a down payment of everything that is to come, but, but, but all of what we are going to get in salvation has not been received yet. It's not realized yet. The Spirit is the guarantee of what will come and what we will receive. But, but they were talking in terms of we've got it already. And we're reigning like kings. Again, there was this triumphalism in their, in their talk, this super spiritual tone that the Corinthians were engaging in. And when you get to chapter 15, you, you kind of get reminded of this again because some of them were saying that the resurrection has already happened. The resurrection when we get new bodies, the resurrection when we're finally free from sin, the resurrection when we're finally free from everything that encumbers us now. They were talking as though they were living in resurrection reality right now. They'd already arrived. And Paul says, and that without us. Wow, are you spiritual? You actually achieved all of this without the help of the apostles. What's he getting at here? You're just filled with pride. You're filled with spiritual pride. And that's the context in which he says these things. So look at what he says now in verses 9 through through 10. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. The illustration here is that of a Roman legion after it has conquered a people. And the the legion is, is on its way into Rome. They're walking down the main street of Rome and the crowds are gathered on the other sides and and the people are cheering because there's the Roman legion successful in battle and behind the legion are all of those who have been captive. The spoils of war. And Paul says, that's what we apostles are like. That's what you Corinthians think. Like men condemned to die in the arena. Those people who had been captured in battle, they would eventually end up in the Colosseum in Rome, and there the gladiators would make meat out of them. And Paul's saying, that's sort of how you you view us. We are fools for Christ, but you, he says, are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. We are cursed. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. These are strong words that Paul is using. He's saying, you think you're better than the apostles well, you need a better glimpse, is what Paul is saying, of what true Christian leadership is all about. And this is what true Christian leadership is all about. It's about being truly, brutally treated. It's about going hungry and thirsty. It's about working hard with your hands. And notice, notice what he says here. Look at verse 11. To this very hour, he says. To this very hour we go hung, hungry. And then the last line in verse 13, up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth. See, he's contrasting that with what they're saying as though they've already arrived, as though the final day has already come. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it hasn't. Up to this very moment, in this present time, this is what Christians experience. This is what Christian leaders experience. There is no suffering-free, persecution-free, hardship-free Christian life at this time, is what he's saying. And the Corinthians are thinking, like, we're different. We're on a different level than the apostles. And they're writing Paul off as though he is inferior. As he says, you consider us to be scum. You consider us to be refuse. Can I be really frank here? What the Corinthians wanted was a prosperity gospel preacher. That's what they wanted. They wanted a preacher who would tell them that you can be free from suffering right now. They wanted a preacher who could tell them, promise them that they would be free from any any hindrances in life now, that God wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise all the time. 
And Paul is calling them here back to the model of the apostles. This is the model for Christian leadership is what he's saying. And when you look at Paul, what do you see? What are you reminded of when you look at the life of the apostle Paul? You are reminded of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us in these verses. So friends, if, you, if we were to place the Apostle Paul and what he says here alongside what Isaiah says about Christ, what do we see? We see the same thing he's saying. Listen to what Isaiah says. Christ, Jesus, he, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Remember what Paul told the Philippian believers? He said in chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And the Corinthians are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the power piece. That's what we want. It's not all that Paul says. I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I desire the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Church leaders are to live in the light of the cross, and look at what he says in verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Imitate me. Brothers and sisters, we follow a Christ who has been crucified. And right to the end of this age, not now, but right to the end of this age, we are called to take up the cross and to follow him. And there is no other way of following Jesus in this age. Christian leaders are not generals who usher commands and stay in the back and allow the troops to go into battle. Christian leaders are on the front line of battle. They lead by example and they lead by word. And to praise any form of Christian leadership that despises suffering and preaches escape from the world and promises health and wealth and trouble-free Christian living now is to deny the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian leaders must preach the message of the cross and they must live the message of the cross. And finally, church leaders are are to encourage people to live in the way of the cross. Look at what he says in verse 14. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the the gospel. Now, up until now, Paul's been, he's been speaking very sternly, critically, to make his point. But in verse 14, we really, we really capture Paul's heart. Why was he so blunt? Why was he so frank? Why in these opening verses did he, did he, did he really go at them? Well, it's, it's, it's what we see here in the 14th verse. I, I, well, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to warn you as my dear children. For, for I, he says, am your father in the gospel. They heard the gospel through Paul. He's admonishing them. He's correcting them. He's encouraging them to go in the right way, to live in the way of the cross. And so verse 16, then he says, imitate me. And the context here is is chapter 3 and 4. He's saying, he's saying, he's not calling them to, 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 he's not saying that he expects them to suffer exactly the same things that he did as an apostle of Jesus, but he's saying, imitate my passion. To live in the light of the cross of Jesus. Imitate my values and my priorities and imitate the centrality of the cross of Christ 
in my life. You know, all of us know the limitations of a letter, right? We, we write a letter to someone, an email, whatever, and we struggle at times because we, we grasp for the words to express it all. And we know, that, uh, we know that written expression is limited and that sometimes, even if it's written with, with, with the deepest of the burden of, of heart and fully in love, words written can seem so cold. So what does Paul say next? Verse 17. For this reason I'm sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's saying, I can tell you in a letter how I have lived my life. And I can tell you in a letter and encourage you to live in the way of the cross. But I, I'm, I'm struggling for words, so I'm going to send Timothy to you. And Timothy is not going to come just to teach you doctrine. He's going to come to remind you, he says here, of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul is suggesting here that Christian leaders must not only teach the gospel, but they must teach how it is to be lived out. That it's not so much what we confess, what we confess is important, but how we conduct ourselves is important also. And this needs to be modeled by Christian leadership. And church leadership needs to be committed to encouraging and insisting that people live in the way of the cross as they too live in the way of the cross. And notice what he says now beginning in verse 18. He brings his thoughts on leadership to a conclusion. And he says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. What's happening here? It appears that there was a small group of people in the church. They may have become the new leaders of the Corinthian church. And Paul's saying that they're proud, they're arrogant. They they have this sort of a self-appointed opinion of themselves. They're the self-appointed opinion makers within the church. And they're swaying the people. And Paul's saying, he's saying here, these people want me to remain away. They don't want me to come to Corinth. Why? Because when I show up in Corinth, (laughs) I'm going to set them straight. That's what he's saying. He wanted, they wanted Paul to remain away so that because they saw him as an obstacle to their self-centered plans. It's very sad what Paul's writing about here. But he says, I will come to you, verse 19, very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Look at the next verse. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's not word it's power. It's power. These individuals were showing off their, their importance, that they were more important than the gospel itself. And Paul is saying, he wants, when I come, when I come, I want to see what, what power they have. You see, they were all about word. They were all about talking. This takes us back to chapter one. They were enamored with the wisdom of word. And so here's a group of people in the church who are all puffed up with themselves because they have a certain way of communicating and swaying people to their side. And Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talking. It's a matter of power. People can be impressed with their words, but do they have power? Do they really have spiritual power? Paul's not talking about miracles here. He's talking about the power of the gospel of Christ to change people. I remember years ago, there was a man in my former church who I say was just like what Paul is writing about here. He had an opinion on everything. 
And I can remember he was very, very dogmatic on evangelism. That we should be doing this to win people to Christ. And, and the methods we're using are wrong. And, and we should be doing this and this and this. And, and this is the proper way to do it. And he went on and on and on and on and on about how we are to reach people with the gospel of Christ. He never led one person to Christ. Not one. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talking. It's a matter of power. It's a matter of power. And so now in verse 21, Paul was so determined to move God's people to living out the gospel that he was prepared even to be severe with them. In verse 21, he says, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? And sometimes church leaders are required to be stern and firm. And we'll talk about that next Sunday morning. So this is what Christian leadership is all about. It's all about servanthood. It's all about stewardship. It's all about living in light of the cross and calling others to live in the way of the cross as well. So let me give you now just a few fine points to take, to take away, some takeaway points that I think are applicable to us in light of this message. Let me speak to all of us who are members of West Highland. You make West Highland your home. First of all, we should be receiving with joy the blessing that comes from a plurality of leaders within a local church. The Corinthians had this mindset. And the mindset was, you got to follow my leader and I'm going to cut you off from the other leaders. Friends, that, that mindset cuts us off from the wider heritage and blessing that is rightfully ours in the church. When we, as it were, restrict ourselves and give our allegiance to one leader, then we rob ourselves of the heritage and the blessing that comes from the good that can come to us from others who lead. And Paul's point is, I think what he's getting at here, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21, I think this is the point Paul's making here. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they're all yours. God has given leaders to this church and they're your leaders. And enjoy the wonderful blessing that comes from a plurality of leaders because they all are contributing to the church to bless the church. They all belong to the church. Embrace the leaders that God has given to you. Number two, be careful and prayerful in your choice of leaders. This is very, very important for those who are called to live the cross of Christ, to live in light of the cross. There, there needs to be evidence in the leaders that they are taking up the cross, that they are denying themselves, that they are putting to death the misdeeds of the body, that they are living a life that is crucified with Christ, that they are living willingly to endure hardship for the sake of Jesus Christ. Be careful and prayerful in your choice of leaders. Number three, be devoted in prayer for your church leaders. Pray for me. Pray for the others. Pray for all of the pastors of our church. Pray for the ministry team. Pray for the elders. Pray for the, de the deacons constantly that we will live in the way of the cross. And finally, to church leaders, let me say this. Exactly what Paul says, first thing is, we must be careful how we build there's a warning in this passage about shoddy building and shoddy building materials. And if we build the church on charm and personality and positive thinking and entertainment and people smarts and impressive words, instead of prayer and trust in God and faithful preaching of God's word and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be building that which will be combustible in the end. We must be committed to the centrality of the cross to live in the light of the day when all of our works will be tested with fire. We are building a temple, the temple of the Lord.
Secondly, to church leaders, we must be faithful to Christ on the cross, no matter what the cost. There is a cost to leadership in a local church. We have to be examples, not just examples in the church, but examples in the home. We have to be willing to endure hardship. And there are times that as church leaders, we are called upon to lead people who are just like the Corinthians. Proud and arrogant and super spiritual and and critical. But at those times, we must lead. And number three, we will be rewarded for our service and leadership. You know, we don't like to talk about rewards in the church very much because we know that salvation is by grace. It's the free gift of God. But, and that's why we avoid talking about rewards. But Jesus promised rewards to those who follow him and serve him. And you know, Paul actually does the same here. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 8. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Verse 14, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. We will be rewarded for our service and leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the bottom line. And I say this with joy in my heart. God blesses his servants. Hallelujah. And one day his servants, his leaders, will hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, for these thoughts today from your word, we thank you for the insight that the Spirit may have given to us this morning in the explanation of these these two passages in your word. Thank you. Lord, we commit ourselves to you as congregation, as people, and as leaders. We commit our future into your hands. Thank you for the foundation that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And help us in the coming days to continue to build with gold, with silver, and with precious stones so that Jesus Christ will be praised on that final day. Amen. May God the Holy Spirit continue to empower us as we seek by his help and empowering to continue to build on the firm foundation Jesus Christ For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to him be glory and honor, praise and glory, now and forevermore. Amen.